2: LinkedIn
0: Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. It's been the best part of eight years since Joe Cornish released his directorial debut, Attack the Block, and in, well, my humble opinion, his follow-up, The Kids Who Would Be King, has been well worth the wait. That's not to say Joe hasn't been busy co-writing The Adventures of Tintin with Edgar Wright, Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson and Atman with Edgar and Paul Rudd, amongst others. But it's great to have him back at the helm. Now, based on an idea that Joe originally had as a 12-year-old, the kid who would be king tells the story of a young boy who finds King Arthur's legendary sword Excalibur and must then use it to stop the mythical enchantress Morgana from destroying the world. Now, during our chat, you'll hear us forgetting a lot of things a woman singing in joe's bath music by prefab sprout led zeppelin and john williams and the quite wonderfully over-the-top trailer for john Berman's excalibur the kid who would be king is scored by electric wave bureau a collective comprising damon alburn his wife susie winstanley michael smith and nelson Defratis, and it's with their cue enter merlin that we begin Cornish welcome to Soundtracking.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Do you know one of the things I really wanted to ask you because I know how much of a film fan you are yes. and have been since a young age Yeah. how exciting it was for you to have your new film have the 20th century fox trumpets. Amazing at yeah the Start. it's fantastic. That's something that you know as a kid you're a you know that kind of yeah
1: no, we did have it played by uh, with medieval instruments. Yep. We thought it would be cool to have a medieval version. <laughs> but it just sounded like an episode of Blackadder. <laughs> so we thought, nah, let's just have the real thing. <laughs> Plus we thought, no, the real thing sounds like a proper film. If you swap it out with little tink, tink, tinkily, like, hooters, it doesn't sound...
3: <laughs> Kazoos. <laughs> Kazoos, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> sound so good.
1: But then, I mean, yeah, no, it's such an I- iconic logo and piece of music that it elevates everything you stick it in front of
0: yeah it is it's like but it's it's really um transformative as well in terms of you suddenly have almost kind of that you know like when people say like when you're about to die your life flashes in front of you when you hear that you almost have this kind of fast cut of all the films or some of the films that you've yeah. seen in that environment with that yeah. plane sort of thing
1: i mean 20th century fox as everybody knows are being absorbed by disney yeah At the time of recording this, nobody quite knows what's going to happen to it. It feels like it's going to survive as a brand within Disney at the moment. But one of the things that makes me feel it'll never die is who in their right mind (laughs) would get rid of that? (laughs) logo and that piece of music. Yeah, exactly. I mean it would be like sort of stamping on a, a one of the what are they called? The Ravens at the Tower of London or something, wouldn't oh, it? Cool yeah or a swan in Regent's Exactly. Park, yeah. It would be so transgressive to be the person responsible <laughs> for snuffing out that flame. Yeah. That you know, in and of itself it might keep that studio alive. I hope it does. Mm.
0: Congratulations on the kid who would be king. Thank you. It's brilliant. I was lucky enough to chat to quite a lot of the cast at the weekend, including Sir Patrick Stewart, who plays Mm. your your older Merlin, and I've got to mention young Mister Emery as well. Oh my God, he's He's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I must have seen him in something. He's in the Archers. Oh.
1: You wouldn't have seen him in The Archers, only in <laughs> your minds mind. Yeah, uh, He's made another independent movie, well, an independent movie, called Pond Life, that I think he shot just before The Kitty Who would be King, that hasn't been released yet. Oh, okay. But no, he is a, a, a very, very excellent actor. Oh
0: my God, I can't wait to and see him. And he's
1: going places, yeah, because yeah. he's very charismatic and brilliant. And yeah. I actually wrote that part younger. I envisaged it as a younger Merlin who was the same age as the youngest kids in the cast. But then the casting director said, we we were struggling to find a young kid that had the right charisma and (laughs) chops. And the casting director, Jessica Renane, said, oh, it's such a shame the character isn't a little bit older because there's this this actor called Angus Imri and he's so good. You sure you don't want to see him? (laughs) I said, all right, then bring him in. And just the second he started performing, it was like, right, that's it. He looks 16, will be fine, age up the character a few years, done.
0: Is that an easy thing to do?
1: Age up a character? Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a key on Final Draft. <laughs> just go Control-A, hold down A, and U, age up. And it just ages everybody instantly. up. Or instantly, yeah. Screenwriting's very easy. It's mostly software-based these Most days. Most commands. Yeah, yeah.
0: Where did, when did you start thinking about the music with the film? Because it's, you have to tell me about the Electric Wave Bureau, because I don't mm. know that much about them, apart from the brilliant work they did on... Paddington 1 and
1: 2 yes so it's I always think it sounds a bit like the British Electric Foundation do you remember that?
0: or like ELO's like children yeah (laughs) yeah
1: British Electric (laughs) Foundation was Heaven 17 wasn't it it was like it it was some weird logo (laughs) on the (laughs) on the Heaven 17 (laughs) albums But what it is is that while I was writing and also while we were doing the costume tests, we would play Dirty Harry by Gorillaz a lot, because that track has sort of swagger, it's very cinematic, it's got an orchestral element, it's also got this chorus of kids in it, and it sort of summed up the tone that we wanted to capture with the film. When it came to thinking about the score, uh, we thought about Damon Auburn. and then it turned out that Damon has this film composing collective with his wife, Susie Winstanley. She's an autonomous individual on, in her own right. You shouldn't describe her just as the man's wife. That's yeah. sexist, isn't it? So Damon Auburn, Susie Winstanley, Mike Smith, who's also the musical director for Gorillaz and the yeah. Good, the Bad and the Queen, and Nelson De Freitas, and they are Electric Wave Bureau. He's very, and this is something I respect him for, he doesn't want to be seen as the main person because yeah. it's very much a collective and yeah. a collaborative affair, but he is a riff factory. <laughs> he really is. He sort of sits there like a noodle machine
3: yeah.
1: and creates these amazing little melodies. And he also has this kind of archive of, you know, offcuts. Yeah or album tracks that never ended up on an album. So as a group, they can go into this library of material. So some of it was found riffs and some of it was stuff specially composed. cluster around and shape it and choose it and cut it and 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 then obviously uh there's you know an orchestrator comes on board and then the music editor composes stuff based around their riffs it's a big collaborative process For me it's all about melodies, because I love a movie with a melody. You know, it's not a brilliantly original thing to say, but I remember the movies of my childhood having hummable themes, and that's what I want. And you know, Basement Jack's in Attack the Block and uh, EWB in this movie, they're both collaborations between orchestral composers and pop musicians, because the pop musicians know how to write five or six note licks that are real earworms.
0: Damon's studio in West London. They do. Because I've I've been there and so have I. he spent about two hours taking me through an old sound system that he'd got off an ice cream machine. Yeah. And sort of was so he was so proud wow. of this new piece of kit that he just got off an ice cream well, machine. Well that's a
1: big I mean that's and a big I, part <laughs> of the history of pop music in general, isn't it? Finding new sounds.
0: Yeah. Or old things you can put your new yeah. Visions or melodies or things through to just give collecting, them a, yeah Collecting stuff.
1: technology. Yeah, I was just I just read a book about the early history of prefab Sprout. Oh wow! It's a really good book. I recommend it. And that talks about how some of the effects on their single "When Love Breaks Down" are the first oh, time so. a particular vocal processor was used by Thomas Dolby, I think, or yeah. someone like that. So it's amazing how much that matters.
3: together, but often we're apart, absence makes the heart lose weight, yeah. till love breaks down, love breaks down.
0: quite nice as well that we were chatting on the birthday of John Williams.
1: Is it the birthday of John Williams? It is the birthday of John Williams wow.
0: today, which is kind of nice. So I had, I was listening to E.T. on the way up on the play. What a soundtrack. Yeah, just talking about melody, that was when yeah. you said, you know, you, you love melody, and weirdly that was kind of, I was like, well I want to talk about John Williams, and that yes. was like the first one that popped in. Not Star Wars weirdly, which I would no. have thought would have been the first one that came to my head. but
1: Those are re- obviously the most indelible themes, certainly mm. for, for my generation. Superman, *Rage of the Lost Ark, Star Wars, E.T. Themes you're humming as soon as you walk out of the (laughs) cinema. In E.T. particularly, there's a track called Toys that plays when um, Elliot is showing... E.T. his toys, the Star Wars figures. And sometimes what's interesting about musical cues is they accompany one particular narrative strand. So that cue is really about E.T. and him looking at this boy who's explaining his society in this very naive way. But here's this ancient, old, wise alien watching the boy. And there's a little bit of pity in the music (laughs) and sort of naivety and innocence. And it's incredibly moving because it's um, for me, anyway. Because it's it just brings out something incredibly earnest and yearning in 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 the scene. It's very, very beautiful. Also in Williams Williams soundtracks, you have those amazing moments of apotheosis, right? When <laughs> yeah. everything in the story converges. So when Indiana Jones rises up on, you think he's dead, but then he climbs onto the back of the submarine <laughs> yeah. and pumps his fist. Oh when the bicycles fly in yeah. ET you know when all the sort of narrative strands that the director and writer have set up converge and sort of meet at this perfect moment and his theme kicks in <laughs> almost like an engine starting up and it's not even it's not it's even blasting turbo-based. it's just it's like a your favorite steam train is starting up and it's right the like oh yes 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 It's so good. I mean, the ending of E.T. in particular is a symphony. I mean, there's very, very minimal dialogue for the last six, seven minutes of that movie and you try watching it with the sound down and it ain't very cutty.
0: like a short film love story I think mm. as well almost kind of like a almost like a silent movie six minute silent movie almost of, of a love story mm. of these kind of two the characters. bit I
1: don't like is when Wish Upon a Star comes in oh no that's Close Encounters <laughs> yeah. isn't it that's yeah, the other Close Encounters yeah I don't like that bit it doesn't
0: need it what was it like working with Spielberg though I mean you know considering that this is someone that you've you know i'm not sure i'd be able to actually well, have anything this his face isn't it? You you're I mean? so used to seeing sp- with people that
1: famous you're so used <laughs> to just being watching them passively yeah. that actually making your body <laughs> making your face speak <laughs> and you're just like go on carry on talking i'm looking at you you're off the telly uh, oh i've got what well, you can see me and you can hear what i'm saying oh. uh, so it's a bit like that for a bit but really, you're in, you know... Well, okay, so with the first meeting was in a place called Giant Studios in Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. And we Edgar and I had been brought in to rewrite Stephen Moffat's screenplay because it was a bit too long and Moffat was leaving to be the showrunner on Doctor Who. Yeah. So I was asked by Edgar if I wanted to, uh, to work on it. I said, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I bought an economy ticket to Los Angeles. I sat, I'm very tall, so I was very cramped in this... Seat on Virgin Atlantic, and I read, reread all the Tintin books, so I was completely up to speed.
0: Didn't watch any films? No, I was
1: just t- absolutely, t-tid, absolutely, Tintin studying mm-hmm. on the plane over. And then, and then I eventually walked into this meeting room with Peter Jackson, Steven Spielberg, Edgar, and me, and a couple of the producers. Jesus. And I didn't say much, so they were talking about the script, and Edgar suddenly said, Joe's got an idea of how to compress the story. <laughs> Joe, tell him <them> your idea. <laughs> And it was like, (laughs) da-da-da! And so I pitched this idea, and the idea was to actually combine the... The original screenplay had two villains, Sakharin and Rackham. Yeah. So the pirate and the the collector. And my idea was to make them descendants and to cast the same actor. By doing that, you could compress a bunch of the exposition. And I remember Peter Jackson going, yeah, that's, that's quite good. That's quite a good idea that's a new zealand accent i was doing there and i was like (laughs) oh my god and then that was it really and then you just have to kind of get get on with it yeah and you know every day i assumed i would be fired i mean i was just waiting for someone to go joe you're not really you're a radio uh presenter and i'm not sure you should be here so it's been great but (laughs) bye-bye But it, that never happened.
0: Right through to the end.
1: Well, yeah, right through to the second week of filming. Okay. And, and then, uh, because I have to say that I am I was a small cog in a massive machine, you know. I was one of quite a few writers on that film. Spielberg contributed, Peter Jackson cons- contributed, Fran Walsh contributed, yeah. Edgar contributed massively, Moffat contributed massively, you know, it's a huge collaborative. But there's some stuff of mine in there, bits and bobs. Yeah. You know, which is pretty cool.
0: Have you got a lady singing in your bath?
1: I like to... That's the... That's um. The
0: lady in the bath. That's the lady
1: in the bath. It's like the lady in the water. Is she going to
0: come out with a sword? No, it's the
1: shape of water. I've got a fish girlfriend in there. With a sword. Yeah, with a sword. It's sort of kinky.
0: Um, Don't you can't hear her, can you? You can hear her, can't you? Or is it just me? No, I can hear okay. her. It's my
1: fish girlfriend. We've established this. You can't now expect her to go away now that we've summoned her.
0: Do you... Um, Do you listen to music when you're writing?
1: Uh, Yes, I do. Do you Um,
0: create playlists?
1: uh, No, I tend to um, just listen to an album. Okay. And weirdly, I like to go a little bit ambient, so I listen to uh, the remake of Solaris, the Soderbergh Solaris soundtrack. Uh, Who's that by? A man. Oh, man. Uh, I've got it on my laptop.
3: Yeah. Cliff
0: Martinez. Oh, Clive Martin, of course it is.
1: So I listened a lot to uh, <laughs> the Solaris soundtrack by Cliff Martinez uh, which is very kind of backgroundy and ambient because yeah. if it's something too arresting mm-hmm. it'll stop my brain from thinking I'll just start thinking about Indiana Jones or <laughs> <about> <laughs> something like that.
0: Coming yeah. So
1: uh, the other one I listened to a lot was Night of Cups. Okay. Not a film. Yeah. I'm crazy about. I don't dislike it, I've but it's not it. one of my number ones. Okay, Rooney Mara and uh, Tom Hiddleston. Mm. Is it? No. Yeah, it's Cups. not Tom Hiddleston. It's the other bloke. What's he called? Um, no, I've not. Fred Bassett. What's he called? The big star. <laughs>
0: Fred Bassett. <laughs> yeah, liquor is all I sorts. Anyway,
1: <laughs> um, Knight of Cups. Just again because it's quite sort of um, ambient.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: It's really sort of, sort of to block out other thoughts mm-hmm. more than to actually inspire stuff. But if, I, if I'm writing an action sequence, I might put on a bit of John Williams or something more thrusting and powerful.
0: And do you play? Do you have music around on set?
1: Pretty much 100% no. But we did on one occasion in *The Kid Who Would Be King* when the characters go to the school and Alex gives his big rousing speech, attempting yeah. to make all the kids fall in line. <laughs> We played that track from the Kenneth Branagh, Henry V film. <laughs> yeah. What's it called? St Trinian's Day? Not St Trinian's. Um, you know, yes. St Patrick's Day or whatever it's called. I don't know what it's called. Come I don't know anything. Gone today. Um, you know the one, though, the super rousing one that's basically encoded into British people's brains and makes them fight the, the Europeans, <laughs> if you play it. We okay. played that and everybody really loved it.
0: of your cast about whether they used music to like help with character and, and that kind of thing because I can't remember who I'd been speaking to was talking about how they, how they had a song that they would play just in their headphones before they went on set and I was like god I wonder if everybody does that you know in terms of like pump them up and a bit of a kind of like yeah, going I into the know. ring type thing.
1: We played um, as well as Gorillas for Angus for Merlin we played No Quarter by Led Zeppelin nice. lot, which has some Arthurian references in it. So his costume tests was him dancing around to, to that Led Zepp track.
0: That's brilliant.
1: Yeah, I love that track.
3: Close the door, put out the light. No, they won't be home tonight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The snow falls hard, don't you know? Winds of Thor are blowing cold. They're wearing steel that's
2: bright and true.
0: The original Excalibur had a pretty lasting effect on you and you sort of said that you obviously saw it before you, were, you should have done. Mm. I think we've all done that. Mm. Mine was the Deer Hunter, Oof. which is like pretty brutal.
1: Yeah, well, this was the golden era when there was no certification on VHS, so there's a whole generation of us that were, I think in a positive way, exposed prematurely to all these...
0: The Hitcher as well, I remember. I saw With that the, chip. the
1: cinema, the Hitcher.
0: The ketchup and yeah. not being a chip. And he's
1: pulled in two by the two cars. Oh, good movie. But, like, if you were around in the late 70s, early 80s, you could hire anything you wanted for a window of about four years before Mm. the video nasty moral panic happened and certification arrived. So, you know, when I was 12, one night, I went to my friend Jolly and Parsons' house and we rented the Zombie Flesh Eaters, The Exorcist and Fame. Um, (laughs) And we we were 12 Well, fame was the most traumatizing of the three because of that bit at the beginning when he's pretending to take a shit. Do you remember that? (laughs) I thought, this is outrageous. I don't mind the woman's eyeball being penetrated by the splinter or the possessed girl. (laughs) But this man pretending to have a poo is beyond the pale.
0: Someone bring in some certification.
1: Yeah. Anyway, so it was in that period I saw Excalibur as well and it's quite erotic and very violent and pretty esoteric and weirdly sort of brilliantly over the top. Mm -hmm. Like, incredible performance by Nicole Williamson as Merlin. The photography's extraordinary. The use of landscape is amazing. The whole thing's amazing. And not to overuse the word amazing, but I was amazed (laughs) (laughs) as a kid by it.
2: A Wizard's Ancient Spell. The lust of a lord. I must have her. One night with her. Give birth to an empire. Behold! The sword of power, Excalibur! The future has taken root in the present. It is done. Ah! Lion Pictures presents John Borman's Excalibur Knights of the Round Table We shall always come together in a circle To hear and tell of deeds good And brave And I will marry Don't you know me Merlin
0: Because I'm a creature like
2: you Their magic is Merlin Are you just a dream To some A nightmare to others Their king is arthur you are my husband i must be king first their power is excalibur i swear eternal faith to our king (laughs) sir lancelot you will be my champion which is that greatest quality of knighthood true where hides evil then where you never expected I protest my innocence! Were I not king, I would make you pay with
3: your life! A world
2: of wizards, kings, warriors, queens, swords, sorcery, and desire. Forged of splendor and magic, where future meets past, flesh meets steel, and the only fear is the pain of love. Excalibur, sword of power, sword of kings.
0: I mean, John Berman, Deliverance is really the only other thing that I really know in depth that he's mm-hmm. done. Leo the
1: Lost, from, Hope okay. and Glory.
0: There we go, of course, yeah.
1: Hope and Glory was good. Yeah, Hope and Glory's great. You bolder googly. <laughs>
0: Trevor, Trevor Jones, the, the composer that he worked mm. with on, on Excalibur, and I was just looking at all the stuff that he'd done... Mm. Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, Angel Heart, Nicky Works. Yes. Great film. Hello.
3: Yes, this is Harold Angel. Uh well yeah, I could be free.
2: Mary Angel. Pleased to meet you, Mr Angel.
0: And then things like um, Cliffhanger and In the Name of the Father, it's like... A
1: couple of classics.
0: But what an amazing...
1: In the Name of the Father.
0: <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis, man. Have you ever yes. met him?
1: No. Have you?
0: No, but I've heard... I was chatting to um, Thelma Schoonmaker today and mm. she was talking about him in uh, Gangs of New York and how he stayed as in character as Bill the Butcher for the entire wow. shoot. Even like if they'd go out for dinner at night. Really, that must be quite tiring, don't you think?
3: Yeah. Come on, Full Daniel. On. Just
1: for five minutes.
0: Can't you make? Can't you snap out of it? I was thinking about the guy having a poop now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> snap the out, out of joy. it, Leroy. Um, That's the
1: character's name, not the actor's name.
0: What, um, what other films going into making the kid who would be king? Do you watch stuff? before you start filming. Not as kind of a inspiration or anything, but just, I don't know, as, as kind of...
1: Not so much this one, you know, because okay. it was so ingrained in me because yeah. I thought of it when I was 12 and I pictured all the the first act and the last act I pretty much had by the time I was 13. Wow. And um, I didn't know what... Didn't, it didn't make sense, really, but I had a whole string of bits. And... Uh, that sounds like a character from a Predator movie who has a string of bits <laughs> I carry all the bits on a string around my neck um, but yes yeah, so it was. I was really writing from sort of um, my little child brain really mm. and then obviously hopefully applying my wise adult screenwriting experienced brain to it as well yeah but not really I mean
0: but I think that's a good thing that's almost what you want isn't it because you are it's kind of from a. it's a child's perspective of this this kind of story the child's experience so we uh,
1: talked about when I first talked to Bill Pope we talked about kez yeah and we talked about wanting it to be naturalistic because we felt it would the fantasy would be more effective if it existed in a in a sort of realistic world mm-hmm. whereas with attack the block we looked at the warriors and streets of fire mm-hmm. assault and precinct 13 because that was about lighting at night and we wanted we purposely wanted to make attack the block look like a 70s disney movie we wanted to do the precise opposite of what everyone else had done with gritty british urban films yeah and make it colourful and yeah. escapist and phantasmagorical and psychedelic but limit ourselves to using real things that you would find in the environment so the you know uh, the the green of a traffic light and the exhaust of a car would yeah. create a magical ethereal puff of green smoke you know mm-hmm. the up lights on the tower block would make it look like the engines of a spaceship so anything we could find that turned the
0: even the, when you the see mundane. them walking in the Tower Block for the first time, and the kind of angles of yeah. of, of that kind of entrance, yeah, to make it look like a, a spaceship, tower yeah. yeah.
1: But this one, it was really, I think, more to make it feel like recognisable suburban reality, I suppose, and make it feel as realistic as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So this was less informed by references.
0: When was the last time you watched Attack the Block?
1: Well, I watched it for the first time all the way through about six months ago
0: the first time
1: yeah i watched it they showed it at the bfi imax and i watched a good half an hour of it there because it looked amazing on that big screen but there comes a moment when i really wish i'd done better and i just go off but i think a lot is i think a lot of directors are like that
0: well yeah it must be well i, w- I watched it again i haven't watched it since kind of came out so I think i'm desperate to show rudy my 10 year old actually oh man it was great fun watching it again so good oh good and and the music in it as well you know it's just really cleverly thought and I know you did a lot of research in terms of speaking and and spending time with kids that age in that sort of neighborhood trying to kind of really make it feel authentic and and real
1: we did yes the first thing I well I figured out the story and then got a a, an artist friend to draw five or six moments from it cartoon style a couple of experimental images of the alien kids on the mopeds the aliens climbing up the outside of the block, so so like five or six key images. And then with this brilliant writer and researcher called Lucy party we went to a bunch of, of youth clubs, youth groups, trying to find kids that were like the characters, and talking them through the story, and just literally showing them an image. We used a lot of photography by a photographer called Charlie White, who does these amazing pictures where he makes alien carcasses and puts them in a sort of sort of inner city environment but but in, you know, South America or, or somewhere like that so there'll be this chubby kid with an alien carcass on a stick. I recorded all the responses, I recorded everything the young people said and then I went home and transposed it and I ended up with two massive fat A4 files full of transcripts then I went through with a highlighter pen <laughs> and I just hi- highlight the funniest bits. And so there's a lot of it just went straight into the script, too much madness for one text. And then by just the process of transposing it and listening to it, I sort of taught myself so I could start to write little bits for myself. Because the other excuse was it was like um, a science fiction language, like um, whatever the language in Clockwork Origins is called Nadzak or something. Nutsak, I want to say, but <laughs> it's not called that. Or Klingon, you know. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's an easy thing when you're choosing existing music to put in a film. So like songs that people have a connection with already so I'm
1: not a big fan of that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in my work, mm-hmm. I don't mind it in other people's. I think for instance when Edgar does it, it's so incredibly cleverly done.
0: I mean Baby Driver, Jesus. Yeah, and that's a proper
1: just... thought experiment in oh digestive and non diegetic music yeah. and but me and Adam used to really dislike it weirdly on BBC documentaries. <laughs> we always just think, fucking hell, the BBC have got this agreement with the music publishing companies where they can use anything, right? So they'll use, like, 20 seconds of a Beatles song on Homes Under the Hammer, (laughs) and you're like, and yes, it's fun and exciting, but it's like, yeah, but that's the Beatles, like, come on, do a bit of work, don't just, (laughs) and we always used to be very cynical about how people relied on needle drops.
0: Yeah, like X Factor those shows, when it's a show. sob story. But you see it in movies as well, like yeah. the
1: story's flagging, so Tears for Fears kicks in really loud for 15 seconds, and it just sometimes feels a bit lazy. Like, you should be doing that with your storytelling and your filmmaking, not just... Oh, it's yeah. just felt a bit of a wrap. Anyway, before, when me and Adam used to find that, we used to be very sarcastic about it when we saw it, and that sarcastic attitude just slightly stayed with me, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah. And plus, the movies I love don't really do that. That's really a mid-90s thing. Wasn't happening so much in 80s movies, was it? There'd be a hit single at the end, like Cindy yeah. Lauper would sing
0: Good Goonies yeah. Are Good Enough yeah.
1: at the end. Yeah. There might be in Ghostbusters, a robot might come into the room or someone might walk through a scene with a walkman on yeah. and you'd briefly hear a bit of yeah. a track.
0: Back to the Future was the first one. So it had right. the Johnny B Good in it where he's playing.
1: But it's still but they're all but, they're all seeded into the storytelling, yeah. I think.
0: Uh, Ghostbusters definitely had a few because the (laughs) Ghostbusters
1: soundtrack had Do You Believe in Magic? It has seven or eight tracks and I remember trying to find them in the movie I didn't (laughs) hear that in the film and it literally was Bill Murray or or like a janitor walking past with a Walkman on and that would be their excuse to (laughs) To put put it on on the soundtrack. soundtrack Yeah
0: You know, started a whole new.
1: Yes, guess, but at least sort of he was being a sort clever. of um, vinyl junkie, wasn't yeah. he? He was bringing it back. It was part
0: of his storytelling, yeah. really, the way that he yeah. did it.
1: He does it very cleverly. Yeah. But it can be done lazily. So so generally, <laughs> I don't think
0: there's any in. Is there any in the kid who would I be king I can't think of the. I mean, i, I made. Oh, no there's no. some Bucks Fizz. Oh my god, there is. There's yes, yeah, i may believe. But yes. Stars in your eyes, little one. Where do you go to dream?
3: to a place. We all know the
0: land of Made. I had that album.
1: Yeah, I love that album. Oh, man. See, the, the terrible, honest truth is that was the album I was listening to when I thought of this idea when I was 12.
0: And I love that you got to put it in the film.
1: Well, that's why I put it in the film. <laughs> because it's it cost so much? Of, well, you know what? It did cost quite a bit because the people who wrote that song Hold I'm on. I'm sorry to on. shatter your oh dreams but Mike, Cheryl, Kevin and it was Boris. Was no Kevin. <laughs> whatever they were called. Mike,
0: Cheryl. Oh my god. Yeah,
1: Mike and Cheryl is correct.
0: Oh my god. Um what were their names? Boris? No. And oh, Mickey. Come on. J. J was the other lady. That's right. And the other guy Mike, was Cheryl,
1: J and and Shop. <laughs> Wasn't <laughs> you're,
0: it? you're thinking of the TV game show with the twins, aren't you? Oh, the twins! Yeah.
1: The the TV game show Funhouse. Funhouse, yeah. Saying. We're not going oh, to struggle to remember what that.
0: What is his name? I Any, know they. Anyway, were, anyway, listen, anyway Bons while Bons you're was, looking yeah. for this, the, yeah.
1: the, the the actual songwriters. Sorry yeah. to shatter your illusions. God. Are pretty well known. It's thrusting. Not <laughs> no, they're pretty important. Good, strong songwriters who've won. Ivan Novello awards wow. and stuff like that and Bobby G. Um,
0: How could Bobby you not G. remember Bobby G? Why are you
1: asking me that? How could you not remember? I wasn't Bobby uh, G? sorry.
0: Did I say that? I was asking myself. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, so it's not cheap to clear bucks fizz, but boy, is it worth it. Man. Yeah. Plus, land of make believe, it's it suits the uh, yeah. the story nicely. I think it ain't cool, but I
3: like that. I like going the other way.
0: Most people won't yourself. know what it is. That's Most people thing. won't know. Yeah.
1: Well, I think parents will know. Yeah,
0: but the kids won't.
1: The kids won't. But little do they know, I'm planting subconsciously <laughs> the evil seed of Buck's Fizz in their brains.
0: <laughs> it's like on the... Um, <laughs> it's like the
1: Manchurian Candidate, but with um, twirling and uh, bobby socks. <laughs>
0: and velcro skirts. Yeah. Um, I've said to a few people actually at the weekend... When I was talking to some of the cast, it's like, I really hope this film for a certain generation of kids is the first. Well, for me, you know, I remember watching all those films like E.T. and stuff that we mentioned. And Indiana Jones, one of the first films I remember getting to go to the cinema on my own with my mates to watch without parents. And that was a big thing. And I hope that this does the same thing. I think it will for a certain generation of film fans who this might be the first film they see at the cinema. Because it's got that real heart to it, I think, that those films had as well.
1: I hope so. That's nice of you to say. That's very much the ambition. It's tough out there. You know, there's a lot of um, toy-based movies <laughs> tempting kids in. There's a lot of big stars dressed in tights punching each other.
0: But what they do, I think, that is a real shame for... like, I've got a 10-year-old, but we can't, he can't go to the cinema and watch any of those films. We can right. watch them at home because I'm a bad parent and i right. let him watch them. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? But there's a kind of weird sort of age gap. 10 to 14 really where they can't go to the cinema and watch these films and there's something magical about going to the cinema and that experience and this i think is one of those things where you can't and it's like whoa
1: i hope so i think i think certainly my generation had the privilege of being able to go and see films starring kids yeah when you were a kid yeah, especially live action yeah exactly like the black stallion was very big for me et was very big for me
0: Goonies was big for me.
1: Yeah, and they're movies with recognisable characters in a recognisable world.
0: You could easily be one of them.
1: Yeah, and the fantasy arrives in the real world, and that's very powerful when you're that age. So, yeah, that's definitely what we're trying to do with The Kid Who Would Be King.
0: You've had the story with you for a long time. Why was kind of now the time, and why was this the film that you wanted to make following on from Tack the Block?
1: It was sort of... I think a result of slowly realizing I could get the finance to make something bigger after Attack the Block. I didn't know what Attack the Block was going to end up like. I didn't know what the response was going to (laughs) be. You know, it's kind of a weird film for for me as half of Adam and Joe to make, you know. I really didn't know what the response was going to be, so it took me a while to realise that people liked it. Also, the response was quite mixed at first, you know, it didn't set the box office alight. A lot of uh, maybe slightly more right-wing people thought it was outrageous that I was sort of turning this mugger into a hero. Um, a lot of people didn't like the young actors. Actually, quite a lot of the criticism of Attack the Block was, is similar to some of the criticism that The Kid Who Would Be King is getting. But, you know, that always happens with a movie in the first flourish of its arrival in the world. And then people who it doesn't work for just drift off. And you're left with the people who do like it. And, yeah. you know, the fate of the film depends on how many people, how many people there are after that opening mm-hmm. weekend. And luckily, Attack the Block has worked for, for, yeah. for lots of people. So it took me a while to realise that It was okay, you know, and people liked it. And then I got offered a, you know, approached about a bunch of big Hollywood films but felt too trepidatious and inexperienced to take on a massive project, thought I might get crushed by the wheels of industry in another Heaven 17 reference, (laughs) second one of the podcast. And then I thought, okay, well, if I do have an opportunity to do something on a larger scale, why not do something of my own? Yeah. And seeing as this whole event in my life felt like a flipping dream come true anyway you know working for Marvel working for Spielberg (laughs) attack the block getting the notices it did well why not actually do a genuine bit of wish fulfillment which was this story I thought of when I was 12.
0: On that journey of kind of from attack the block you know going on to work you know on 1010 and Ant-Man and that experience do you think that helped with kid who would be king. I
1: think so, yeah. It was an education about how the industry works. <laughs> yeah. Like, taking a bit of time out, watching my peers who did take on big films. Yeah. Some of them succeeding, some of them having hits that they didn't feel were theirs. Some of them having tough times, yeah. you know, was interesting. It was kind of a, a bit of a wake-up call, and... You know it was having fantasized about it for so long to see the reality in action was interesting to take a bunch of meetings but then step away and see what actually happened rather than what people said would happen was instructive in terms of the actual process of filmmaking it's sort of the same, and everyone says this, and it's true whether you're working with a hundred pounds or you know a hundred million pounds, not mm-hmm. that I've ever worked with a hundred million pounds yet. <laughs> you've never got enough time, you've never got enough resources, everything always goes wrong, uh, and it's all just a hustle. You know. But I've, been, I've got a fantastic producer and amazing people around me, so it's made pretty easy for me.
0: What's next? Do you know?
1: In terms of me making films? It, yeah. I, I don't know. No, I've got a, a screenplay that I'm midway through that I'm writing with a chap called Brian Duffield and have been writing for a few years. It's a sort of, um, it's a film. But, you know, you just, I just don't know, you know. Yeah.
0: It takes so long.
1: It takes so long and stuff changes so much. You know, even since I've made Attack the Block, the industry's changed so much. Mm-hmm. Like streaming and yeah. stuff and um, dominance of superhero movies and uh, I don't know. So I think a, a, a short period of assessment. Mm-hmm. But I really want to try not to take so long this time.
0: Talking of superhero involves you had a you know you had a, a kind of dip into the Marvel world. Mm. What was that experience? It was like a very that? long
1: dip. It was a soak. Yeah, a,
0: a nice good eight year, year soak. So- wow. It was eight Something years? like, something was like that.
1: Well, we fir- we f- Edgar first discussed Ant Man with them after Shaun of the Dead.
0: Holy crap!
1: That was a long time ago. And then we were both we both wrote the treatment together after Shaun of the Dead because I would tag Is that team. that film
0: basically yours then? The story of that first film.
1: Uh, the story is Edgar and mine, yeah, and you know the the uh, he had and Edgar had the basic outline for it. He knew he wanted it to be a, a heist, and it is based on the tales to astonish. It's based on elements of the original comic, yeah. but a bunch of stuff in the finished film is still ours. It's obviously not done in the way that Edgar would have done it, um, and a bunch of stuff is not ours. But it was a fascinating process, sort of witnessing the way that company evolved and changed and found its success over all those years. Mm was an amazing thing to be part of and to observe from inside. Yeah. It's a shame Edgar didn't get to make our version, but I think it was very brave and right of him to decide to step out mm. rather than make a compromised version.
0: Do you think you two over make a film together?
1: I think he's, t- he's in charge Here's the thing about collaborating with someone Mm -hmm. or working with another person. And weirdly, Jonathan Ross said this to me years ago, and I think it's proved to be true. You kind of got to know who's in charge. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it'll just be feuds and end in ugliness. And, And in a way, that was Adam and I used to struggle with that. Like, we both wanted to be in charge the whole time. Yeah. And eventually, we would just have to go and do our make little toy movies independently so one of the things quite rightly i'm i'm sort of work i am working with edgar but he's he's the guy you know i'm there to enable and assist him really that makes it sound very one-sided but and that actually isn't how it manifests itself if you it's very collaborative but in my mind he's smarter than me i think you know we're very different as well. We do very different things, but um, especially if it's a project he's brought me onto, which yeah. which was the case with Ant Man and Tint, and I wouldn't have been there without him. I'd love so, um, to see
0: you both create something from the start together. Do you know what I mean? That kind of thing where it's it's not your idea or his idea, it's kinda of like
1: Yeah, we have noodled around with a thing, but we keep going off and doing other things.
0: This is a favourite word of yours as well, noodle. noodles. Noodles, yeah. they're <laughs> delicious. And they <laughs> And also character and gorillas. There you go. There you go. There you go. Um, Joel, thanks so much for your time. Um, Pleasure. And the minstrels that are set out in a really weird sort of yeah,
1: slightly obsessive. For from for, for you. Yeah, away. Now um, you must have your
0: minstrels. And um, people, please go and see the kid who would be king because it is. Uh, it's just a really wonderful experience, and I look forward to what's next. Thanks. Thank you. From the score to The Kid Who Would Be King, that's Arthur's theme by the Electric Wave Bureau. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the wonderful Joe Cornish. My huge thanks to Joe for taking the time to talk to us. The Kid Who Would Be King is on general release now and I would implore you to get along to your local cinema with the family for good old-fashioned family entertainment. Now we'll put a Spotify playlist up for this show via edithbowman.com which is also the place to catch up with all of our previous episodes including the two featuring Edgar Wright. Please do, if you can, subscribe whilst you're there or head to iTunes where a rating would be, well, very much appreciated. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK for all the latest news. Next up sees the return of one of our favourite guests. Nicholas Britell, whose score for If Beale Street Could Talk is in with a great shout at the Oscars. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>